We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the return of Chessbooks Recaptured. For anyone who has not heard, we used to do monthly book review conversations, often of classic chess books. Had to take a little hiatus while I was writing my own book, but we are back. I don't know if we will be monthly in the future, but I'm excited to get back to talking about some some classic chess books. It's a fun way for me to keep up with my reading and to hear different voices and returning voices as we will be in this pod, and I'm excited to talk about a chess classic, which is Chess for Zebras by Grandmaster Jonathan Rousen. Um, I wanted to thank our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable. Chess for Zebras, by the way, is available on Chessable, which I didn't even know when I decided to do this book um, because this book was written in 2006. I read it a long time ago, did reread it today, but there you can get it on Chessable, both in video format or in readable format. And in fact, there's even a free preview if you want to check out just a free lesson and see what the book's about. So I'll put a link to that in the show description. And my guest co-host for this is someone who was also my guest co-host when we discuss Jonathan Rousen's other classic book, The Seven Deadly Chess Sins. Uh, regular listeners may also be familiar with his legal expertise, 
Uh, he is a constitutional law professor and practicing appellate lawyer, also a USCF expert and blitz specialist rated 2400-ish on chess.com. So in addition to helping me with the seven Dudley Chessons recap, he has twice been the official perpetual chess legal analyst. Um in the, in regarding the Hans Neiman um, and chess.com slash Magnus Carlson lawsuit. So I am excited to welcome back to the podcast, uh, Professor David Franklin. Welcome, David. Hey, it's good to be back. Yes, we threatened to do this when we summarized the dismissal of the lawsuit. And here we are one month later. And as always, we got to start with the why. I know that as we've talked about, I'm a big Jonathan Rousen fan. I know you are as well. So is that simply enough, the why, that you reached out to me to suggest that we discuss Chess for Zebras, David? Yeah, I think when you say A, you got to say B. Uh, we recapped the seven deadly chess sins, so it's natural that we should hit the book that he wrote right after that, the uh, Chess for Zebras. Yeah, so he wrote these books when he was pretty young. I think he was like, I should have looked this up, but I think he was 20 or 21 when The Seven Deadly Chestons came out. And then this came out in 2006, some years later. So obviously those are formative years for lots of people. So he'd learned a lot. Um, I think he has said that this is a, a better book. I'm not, we'll, we'll maybe talk about that in due time, but I would say it's a more mature book. Um, but how do, you, how do you compare these two books, David? I think they are similar in many ways. Um, the Seven Deadly Chestons is really about the psychological and emotional side of the game. And in this book, he really um, turns his attention to the 64 squares. So this is much more self-consciously a chess improvement book, um, but it still has a lot of the deeper, sometimes rather speculative or digressive philosophical ruminations that characterize uh, the seven deadly chess sins. So there's a lot of continuity, I think, between the two books. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you like handed people 10 chess books and didn't know who the authors were, I think you would be able to identify um, that it's the same author. But I have heard there's a lot of people like you and I, David, who are big fans of Seven Deadly Chess Sins. But because I recommend it a lot, I've also heard from other people who say it, it's not their cup of tea. They understand why people like it, but it's maybe a bit too abstract for them. And as you say, this one, I do think it's a bit more focused around uh, adult improvement. In fact, I mean, that wasn't really a term at the time, but it, it was really ahead of its time and a lot of the issues it examines. Um, so I think for that reason, people may find it more relatable, although that's to me primarily part one of the book, as as we'll be discussing. Yeah, I, I think so. Can we talk about the title for a few minutes? Absolutely. So chess for zebras, right? You look at that and you think, wait, what does that even mean? Um, and there's a short preface to the book where Rousen tells us that he chose this title because he was thinking about white and black, right? Zebras are obviously uh, white and black or black and white animals. And he wanted to sort of ask some questions about the nature of black and white in chess. Does white really have the first move advantage? And if so, what's the nature of that advantage? And are there any ways in which maybe black has an advantage? Um, and so he thought a lot about that. And apparently he did a lot of research about zebras as well, <laughs> um, or research about zebras, I guess, as they would say in England. Um, but then in his preface, he says, you know, in the end, I couldn't really make that theme work. I was sort of trying too hard, he says. 
Um, but he ends up keeping the title anyway, maybe right. because it's an homage to um, Simon Webb's super fun book, Chess for Tigers. I don't know if you've read that, but it's pretty great. Um, or maybe just as a sort of vague reference to this general idea of thinking outside the box. You know, you th- you may think you have a horse in front of you, but it it turns out to be a zebra or something like that. And to me, that was sort of emblematic of both the strengths and the weaknesses of the book, actually, that Rousen is is asking really interesting questions, really ambitious questions. He's doing things in unconventional ways. Um, but it's sometimes hard to follow his reasoning and some of the ideas don't really pan out in the end. So it's a it's a book with, I think, really strong strengths, but also some really um, notable weaknesses as well. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I... I mean, to me, it's a very worthwhile book. But as I was pulling quotes from it, I really felt and I I pulled a lot of quotes. I mean, we probably won't be able to share them all, probably like 20 or 25. And I found them often to be uh, borderline profound insights or very succinct insights about chess. But a lot of the stuff in between, my eyes were kind of glazing over a little bit. And um, to Jonathan's credit, he he gave an interview with uh, Chess Base India this year. Um, where they asked him about his books and he was just reflecting on it. And Jonathan said, quote, I ended up writing a couple of books when I was younger. The first was The Seven Deadly Chess Sins and the second was Chess for Zebras. I got carried away in both of them, just following my own interests. In the case of Sins, I was just recently a grandmaster when I wrote it. With Zebras, it was more about my own journey from 2,500 to 2,600. It was a bit richer and a bit more serious. Both of them in their own way, are about the human experience of playing chess and the human struggle to get better at it. Um, That's so really I, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think, you know, I think I mentioned when we discussed the previous book um, that I was actually sort of in touch with Rouse right. at the time in the early 2000s. Um, and that he actually sent me a manuscript of Chess for Zebras and, and asked me for my comments on it. And my recollection, I think I probably got a you know, an earlier draft rather than, you know, something that looks like the final version. But my recollection is that there was a lot of rather abstruse stuff in it about zebras and black and white. And somewhat to my shame, I decided that I didn't really have much to say about it. And I had never ended up sending Rousen any comments on it. Um, so I guess here I am almost 20 years <laughs> later, finally doing that. Um, some of that more abstract material survives and is in the book, but it's in part three, which we'll we'll come to obviously later on in our discussion. I think that's the least successful part of the book, but you know, you may disagree. Yeah, I actually do. Um, I for me, part two dragged a little bit, but we'll get to that. Um, as you say, in time, I just to give uh, listeners who have not read the book a bit more framework. I actually think that uh, Gambit, the publisher does a good job in sort of their promotional materials. So I'll read you the capsule of what they say about the book just to give you a sort of high-level overview. So they say, the author of the acclaimed Seven Deadly Chess Sins investigates three questions important to all chess players. One, why is it so difficult to improve, especially for adult players? Two, what kinds of mental attitudes are needed to find good moves in different phases of the game? And three, is white's alleged first move advantage a myth? And does it make a difference whether you're playing black or white? Um, and yeah, it's pretty well organized, I would say. I mean, digressive in the actual prose, but by theme, I'd say it's well organized. Do you agree? 
I do. I think the three themes are separate, so they don't necessarily cohere together in one book. I mean, the the beauty of the seven deadly chess sins is that there's this unifying conception, right? Which is that there are seven, you know, not six, not eight, but exactly seven uh, sort of psychological pitfalls that all chess players could fall into. And so that gives that book just a, a logical spine. Um, this one, it seemed like there were sort of three areas that he was interested in, and he gives each one of them a part in his book. But the overall effect, to me anyway, is a little bit less cohesive. Yeah, I, I could see that for sure. And he warns before part two, he says, like, this is going to be the most chessy part. And it, it is it is quite different. I mean, in part two is basically like a, a game analysis book. Part one is more sort of rumination. And part three, I guess I would say, is somewhere in between. I, I would agree with that. We should also mention, I think this is definitely a book for stronger players. Yeah. Um, I would say 2000 and up. Um, in general, the annotations and the discussions um, that Rousen gives um, are pitched to players of a pretty high level. In fact, in the very first footnote of the book, Rousen says, if you're under 1800, uh, you should just study tactics. Um, and he actually re recommends uh, a different book <laughs> to under 1800 players, um, Michael Delamaza's Rapid Chess Improvement. So I, that seemed to me to be an implicit statement by Rousen that this book was not meant for that level of player, although I'm sure that there are some ambitious, um, talented, you know, lower rated players who could get something out of this book. Yeah. And so I agree with you. The game analysis in particular is quite high level. I mean, I'm going to be honest, when I read it, I mostly was just going from diagram to diagram. I wasn't I didn't have the chess set out or even wasn't even playing through it on like um, an analysis on online viewer or anything like that. And it was um pretty challenging i would say but on the other hand i felt like the the insights i mean of course we'll be talking about the knowledge versus skills gap which um i think has kind of become a big part of uh chess improvement discourse in subsequent years but at the time he wrote it i think it was um pretty groundbreaking as as we can discuss later but anyway i mean generally to be consumed with the question of why adults struggle to improve at chess and even he has he says stuff about computers that proved prescient and um his analysis about the difference in colors like all of it i consider to be ahead of its time and also to be reasonably relatable i would say for players down to 14 1500 but then as you say the actual game analysis is just like very very high level games and analysis um almost exclusively by grandmasters i believe yeah he has a few games from students of his who, who seem like they're pretty strong, you know, maybe expert master level students. Um, but for the most part, it's it's high level grandmaster uh, games that he's looking at. Yeah. And for listeners who are lower rated, I mean, you can make your own judgment. This book is in addition to being still in print and on Chessable. It's really inexpensive on Kindle. I think it's 10 bucks or something like that. So you can make your own judgment about how worthwhile it is. But to me, there's um, plenty worthwhile and uh, we'll be able to share some highlights, but I don't feel like we'll be able to to cover it all, even though we'll probably go long on this podcast. Well, should we dive in? Yeah, I think we should. We'll be right back to discuss part one of Chess for Zebras, which focuses on the challenges of adults improving at chess. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we are back. So I guess we should go to part one, which is really, I think, for regular perpetual chess listeners, um, this is likely to be the part they're most interested in because he really cuts to the core of the question, why do adults uh, struggle at improving? Um, what stood out to you about part one, David? A lot of things. Uh, part one is called, I think, improving our capacity to improve. Um, and to me, it, it was the closest, both in tone and in substance, to the seven deadly chess sins. In fact, I'm pretty sure that some of the material in part one was maybe originally intended for that earlier book, but didn't quite fit in maybe because he was limited to just seven sins. So there may be some bonus sins lurking in, in part one here. Um, but as you were just hinting earlier, the yeah, the overriding theme of this part of the book is the idea of skill versus knowledge. And he he borrows this idea from a philosopher named Gilbert Ryle that skill is know-how, um, whereas knowledge is know that. Um, so for example, a relative beginner might quote unquote know that an isolated queen's pawn is a weakness. And then maybe a, a somewhat more advanced player might know that an isolated queen pawn actually can be a strength also if it provides uh, you know, an outpost for an attacking piece or something. But a grandmaster uh, won't just know that those things are true, but will know how to play with and against uh, the IQP based on a whole range of pattern recognition and experience having to do with piece placement and the like that that the grandmaster might not even really be able to put into words. Um, and I think that's a really helpful insight. It's it's hard to translate that into improvement. And and Rousen sort of admits this. He says, when you're talking about skill, it's it's harder to teach. You can't just sort of memorize it the way you can memorize rote knowledge. Um, and so in a way, I think Rousen's already anticipating books like Move First, Think Later by, by Willie Hendricks, when he sort of talks about the difference between knowledge and skill. But I found it very provocative. Yeah, I did as well. Uh, here's one illustrative quote. He says, many players, quote, work on their chess as if they're working on an academic subject, but improving your chess is much more like improving your driving or improving your play on a musical instrument than it is like preparing for an exam. Such an improvement can therefore be directed and supervised, but not directly taught. And and to echo what you're saying, David, I did find this to be a profound insight. And as I sort of, you know, I'm pretty um, pretty deeply involved in sort of the chess improvement discourse. And I hear uh, adults who've gotten into chess discuss what they call the knowledge versus skills gap quite frequently now. So I feel like here, you know, 17 years after the book was published, I feel like people have become increasingly aware of this challenge. But again, in 2006, I know someone else who wrote about it early was uh, National Master Dan Heisman. Um, it's covered in his um 
the Best of Novice Nook book, but I'm not sure. That's a compilation of columns he wrote for Chess Cafe. So I don't know when he wrote the actual column. Like, I don't know who in the chess world gets uh, original credit. Um, And I actually ended up writing about this topic in my book a bit and doing a bit of research. Um, And a lot of it had overlaps of something that Dr. Christopher Chabri has talked about on the podcast. And I've read in a bit of my... um, you know, amateur neuroscience reading, which is the difference between uh, fluid and crystallized intelligence. Basically, fluid being the ability to sort of calculate numbers in your head, your working memory, your ability, which actually Rousen talks about, your ability to hold multiple data points in your head at, at the same time. And these are things that tend to that tend to uh, improve. People are better at improving them uh, when they're younger versus crystallized intelligence, which is just your ability to learn facts. And I think adults uh, often are drawn towards um, in- improving their crystallized intelligence in chess, reading more books. Uh, Rousen talks about, uh, he quotes Grandmaster Nigel Davies talking about reading and nodding. He says, chess learning is not reading and nodding. You know, chess learning is doing and getting better. But anyway, David, in my research about uh, fluid and crystallized intelligence, one of the subjects that is cited as an example of uh, crystallized intelligence, where you can continue to get better into your 50s and 60s, one example was vocabulary, but another example is actually law. So I thought it would be interesting to hear how you compare your ability to practice law and gain knowledge about law and sort of improve your craft um, as you age in law compared to chess? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think there are a lot of similarities. You know, both of them are basically a set of structures that you learn pretty early on. And then you can plug different modules into those structures so that if you understand the basis or the rudiments of common law reasoning, uh, and you may have learned that in the context of tort law, well, you can plug in your new knowledge of, say, copyright law or even constitutional law into that same framework. Um, And I think some of the same could be said for chess, um, they're they're kind of a set of patterns that you can learn early on, and then you can add sophistication and detail, let's say, as you get older. Um, But there does seem to be a pretty serious plateau effect in chess. You know, this neuroplasticity thing is a real deal. I mean, we, we all know the experience of playing against strong young players nowadays. And it feels like, yeah, they can assimilate patterns um, through just playing a ton and studying a lot um, that I, at my age, will probably never fully understand. Um, So maybe one can improve uh, at law at an older age than than at chess. I've never really thought uh, about that. I think the the discussion about uh, sort of knowledge versus skill brought up a couple of other thoughts for me as well. Um, One of them, I'm just fascinated with this question, which is when you take these neural net uh, learning systems like AlphaZero, right? What are they actually learning? Right. Right. Like when they play, when AlphaZero played all those billions of games against itself, 
does it now know, quote unquote, that a rook on the seventh is strong? Probably not, right? I think it just knows how, right? It's a know how, not a know that. It probably just knows how to do like a million incredibly subtle, discrete things on the path to maximizing its chance of winning, you know, which will often involve putting a rook on the seven, but obviously it cannot articulate, uh, you know, or, or show algorithmically that that's what it's doing. It's just doing it. Yeah. Um, and then the other thought I had, you know, speaking of the sort of adult, adult improver community, um, you're, you're much more, I think, closely, uh, you know, uh, in contact with those folks than, than I am. But I see these posts on Twitter with the hashtag chess punks and so forth, where people say, you know, I've now studied 304 out of the 400, you know, exercises in such and such a book, which is great. Like, it's great to get affirmation and validation on your progress and, and so forth. But I always wonder when I see those things like, okay, have you gotten any better at actually playing chess? You've right. looked at a lot of pages. What's next? You know, is that more like reading and nodding in the Nigel Davies sense, or is it something deeper that's going on? I'm sure it differs from player to player. Yeah. And I certainly experienced that um, because the, what he describes and he does have prescription for how to, how to basically improve the know-how instead of know that and of course what he prescribes is what you might expect you know play a lot of competitive games but he also gives very specific advice about setting up game-like positions and insists on even using a clock and he wants positions that don't necessarily have a solution so i thought of like the recent vochik miranda books as being possibly decent proxies, but he has very specific advice about not just trying to acquire knowledge, but actually kind of trying to repeat the skill of trying to perform. But but as someone who in theory would like to get better at chess, but my, my motivation waxes and wanes, um, I certainly understand, again, the ability to gain knowledge just seems so much easier than the ability to gain skill. So I think that's oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, that suggestion about just setting up a position he just says, like, find a position that seems interesting to you, you know, somewhere. Yeah, um, I have the quote, actually. And and then and then just set it up and, and think about it for 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You want to read the quote? Yeah. I mean, we pretty much nailed it. He says, however, the main thing is to get into the habit of sitting down, selecting a problem, setting it up, setting the clock, thinking, stopping, comparing your analysis with the source analysis and keep doing this. It will be hard and you will not really be, quote, learning anything through this. But I've but as I've said before, chess is about skill. What you need is not know that, but know how. And the skill that he's talking about there is just the ability to focus and concentrate. That's that's what's so interesting, right? It's it's and he gives an example of a game that he played against your Malinsky in the World Open shortly after having done all of that work that you're describing, which was work that he did with Archer Yusupov. Um, and in the Yermolinsky game, he just sort of is able to sink into the position to think deeply about the details and the complications and concentrate. Um, he also gives an example of an incredibly difficult uh, same colored bishop ending that he gives one of his students on on the internet chess club um, that, you know, then he reprints the entire text exchange that he had with this student about this, I mean, this position where there's a zugzwang, you know, 20 moves down the line or right. something. 
Um, I mean, I would have jumped out the window. Like I, it, this, this kind of sustained concentration work is just so, so hard to do, but so valuable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I'm, I mean, I just can't be help but be impressed as we'll talk about. I mean, and as we've already said, this is not a perfect book, but I just find his, his insights so far ahead of their time as I, as I look back on it now. Yeah. And there's some great ruminations in part one also about storytelling, uh, where, where Rousen is really attracted to this idea that human beings sort of make meaning out of what's going on around them. And they do that through narrative. Um, and he says, chess is no exception to that. We tell stories about our games. Uh, um, you know, I was better, but but then I blundered or or my opponent messed up and now I will punish him, you know. Um, and actually, I started thinking as I was reading this about your friend and frequent guest, Andras Toth, um, who's always telling his students, you know, no, no, chicos and chicas, don't <laughs> give me stories. Give me variations. Give me yeah. moves. Terrible. Sorry, I can't do the Hungarian-Australian mix to, there. Stick to Selecki. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm terrible at that, too. No, that but, one's pretty good. Um, but it's interesting because Rousen doesn't quite say, I don't want stories, I want variations. In fact, he says, becoming a better player might be a matter of learning to tell better stories. Um, and I don't know. I think maybe he's getting carried away. He, he obviously, Rousen loves the idea of narrative. Um, and maybe he thinks it's inevitable. So if you're going to be telling stories anyway, you might as well tell ones in which, as he says, your assessments and your variations make sense of one another. Um, but my practical advice would be more like Andras's, which is try to avoid storytelling altogether and just focus on evaluating the position in front of you. Yeah. Well, to me, there's a distinction. So I, I again, have the quote or a quote in front of me, which is he says, when we think about a position, we are in many ways narrators of our own games. And he compares it somewhere to this idea of trends that he highlighted in Seven Deadly Chess Sins, where he says, like, you know, he's not sure how to quantify it, but his experience has been um, that there are indisputably are trends within a game where you feel like one person has the momentum and then you suddenly feel like it shifts. And I'll always remember when I interviewed Yunlin Bergenhammer, he also like hit on that point from that book saying that it really rang true with his experience. And to me, when Rousen talks about um, telling stories, he's talking about, or the way I interpreted it was the story you're telling yourself during a game and sort of the need to be aware of the fact that like, your judgment is extremely subjective about what's going on in the game at the moment. Whereas what Toth is referring to, which is a very valid criticism in my mind, is when you're actually using stories to justify your moves. You right. know, you're you're right. using stories instead of giving variations. Whereas I think Rouse and I interpreted it as you're playing the game and this and you know this is the story you're telling yourself about how the game's progressing and this is how it's impacting your decision making. But maybe the best thing to do in order to really maintain sort of trend sensitivity is to not tell a story at all. Right. right? Yeah. It's just to sort of say no human being could ever do this. Right. But to strive for the position of saying in every single with every single move, I'm going to try to assess the position that I have in front of me as if there were no history and yeah. no future, you know, be in the moment. 
Yeah, here's here's a quote. He said, my my impression is that many players get into trouble because they have definitive assessments and vague ideas when what you want is clear ideas and revisable assessments, almost the exact opposite. Yeah, I like that quote as well. Yeah, but always, but of course, easier said than done. Um, but yeah. So you want to uh, part two or do you have more thoughts? Yeah, I mean, in closing, I would just say this is part one is worth the 10 bucks on Kindle or if you prefer to get get uh, the chessable. I mean, for me, it was, I mean, I like part three. It sounds like you're not as big a fan. I like part three as well, but but this was my favorite part. And it's just, I mean, you can read it in probably 90 minutes, the whole part, something like that. I mean, the book itself is fairly long, but when you're only reading a third of it, um, but it it alone is worth worth the purchase of the book. But yeah, other than that, I think we can move on to part two. Great. Well, maybe I can try to convince you that there's more good going on in part two than than you think. We'll be right back to discuss parts two and three of Chess for Zebras. And we are back. Part two is called A Mental Toolkit for the Exponential Jungle. Um, And as you say, Rousen tells us that this is the most chessy part of the book. And I agree with you. This part is, is basically just an annotated game collection without a whole lot of unifying theme other than, hey, great players are great because they're flexible, because they're able to grind and they're able to play ugly moves when necessary and they're basically able to do all the things that the position calls for. Um, I didn't like the part where he has this grand unified exactly. theory yeah. of, you know, he says, well, Kasparov thinks that there are three dimensions to chess, material, quality, and time, but Hubner criticized this in some abstruse way, and I, Rousen, have decided, no, there are four dimensions, material, right. quality, opportunity, and time. Uh, this did nothing for me whatsoever. It just felt pretentious and not useful. But there are other parts of part two that I thought were as good as any part of part one. Um, one of my favorite parts is called Doing and Being, um, where Rousen says, especially when you're playing a lower rated opponent, often you don't have to do very much. Let your opponent make mistakes. Let the tactics come to you. And, and he opens this chapter with this amazing Tony Miles game, where Miles, by his own admission, does... Um, shall we say bugger all? I think uh, <laughs> right. Miles right. used an even riper phrase there. Um, just trades a bunch of pieces and still wins because his opponent makes a couple of almost imperceptible errors. It's a, there's a funny quote from Johan Harderson where uh, Harderson says, playing Karpov is like the following. He says, nothing happens and then you lose, right? <laughs> right. Um, now, you have to be a very good player to take advantage of that kind of advice, obviously, but I think it's still helpful. Like I know from my own experience that I'm often trying way too hard to win when I play against lower rated players because I'm afraid of drawing and losing those precious rating points. And I'm spooked by this idea of the kind of intrinsic drawishness of chess. Um, but what Rousen is telling us here is that chess is actually much more difficult than it is drawish. Right. Right. And so the chances are that your opponent is going to go wrong and if you're just alert to that and opportunistic, um, you can beat people without feeling the pressure to constantly do things. Yeah. So I thought that was very valuable. 
No, it's it's I agree. I mean, it's certainly something I've experienced on both sides. I mean, when I'm playing someone who I feel like I should beat or if just if my position is going badly against someone around my rating, I think I've mentioned this before, I have a tendency to sort of panic and maybe try to calculate my way out of it and burn up a bunch of time. When in reality, you just uh, you just have to keep going. And as I mentioned, when I interviewed, I am uh, Dina Belenskaya. I played her in Charlotte and had what I thought was a vicious attack. It turned out the engine says it was an equal game, but I thought I had a really nice attack. I at least thought I was doing well, but in any event, I wasn't doing badly, but she did a postmortem for her Twitch followers that I caught. And I was just really struck by how sort of patient she was. I mean, her approach all along was, you know, I'm playing a weaker player sooner or later, he's going to mess up. And that's exactly what happened. Um, but it's another case where uh, it's it's easier said than done. But certainly, um, I did find that to be a very valuable insight. And he has another metaphor that probably also struck a chord with you. I know they mention it in the uh, Chessable um, promotional materials, which uh, is the idea of keeping it between the hedges. Um, so similar to the concept of being he says, uh, another expression that captures the idea of being is keeping it between the hedges. In Northern Ireland, this expression, just keep it between the hedges, is based on advice given to motorists on some country roads not to worry too much about the exact position of the car as long as you don't bump into anything on either side. I'm not claiming this cap capacity to keep it between the hedges is a style to aspire to, but I do think it is something to be aware of. I've seen thousands of chess games lost through players trying too hard to do something when it would have been enough to keep things roughly on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and then, I like that too. And I, it's, of course, again, very hard advice to follow, right? I mean, yeah, I often feel like, especially when I'm playing a stronger opponent or in a sharp position, that that playing is a little bit more like driving a car with a totally shot alignment, right? Where your right. arm muscles are like straining just to keep the steering wheel from lurching in one direction uh, or another. But, you know, if you can manage it, that's sometimes all you need to do. Yeah. And he cites Mickey Adams as someone who uh, who does a, a good job uh, keeping it between the hedges, which obviously a uh, legendary player. But yeah, he does have that reputation of just being very, very solid and very resilient and tough to tough to bring down. No, absolutely. I think the hero of this part of the book, though, is Luke McShane. So yeah. there's another part of this chapter that I really liked called Glorious Grinding, where Rousen gives all these great examples of, of grinding, you know, patiently nursing a small advantage, probing, waiting, pouncing, you know, which is similar to this idea of be rather than do, right? It'd be actually really interesting to compare this part of this book to the Chessable course on grinding by Magnus Carlson and David Howell, which I haven't had a chance to, to check out yet. Um, I guess Rousen's book was published just as Carlson was beginning to appear uh, as a serious competitor on the world stage. Yeah. Um, but in this part of the book, for some reason, all the grinding is done by black, which I thought was really interesting. Maybe this was a bit of a vestige of this black and white zebra theme where Rousen is trying to think of ways in which black can fight back or, or gain a psychological advantage, you know, neutralize white's first move edge. But, but anyway, the, the, these games, you know, several of which are by Luke McShane, uh, I just found fascinating, right? And the main lesson that he wants us to take away is don't worry about the result. Just yeah. enjoy the process of looking for opportunities, looking for small advantages, just playing chess, right? At one point, Rousen says, 
uh, Luke was enjoying playing so much that he almost forgot he was playing for a win. Um, and that's really interesting, right? Because I think we associate grinding with players like Fisher and Carlson who have this intense will to win at all costs. But what Rousen is saying here is, look at Luke McShane, who seems to just enjoy playing, right? Um, and David Howell may be similar, right? He seems to just love the game. Yeah. Maybe that's why both of them love to play these triple-digit games, right, over 100 moves, and just let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, yeah. One other thing on Magnus, um, shout out to the person who brought this to my attention when I was doing like a, a chessable webinar, but Magnus did read Chess for Zebras and actually recommended it on his Twitch stream. Um, he was asked for book recommendations and he he recommended um, a Rook Endgame book by Karsten Mueller, although not the one that he famously read as a kid, a different one. But then he talked about Chess for Zebras and said he hasn't read Seven Deadly Chessins or this is as of a year or two years ago or whatever, um, but he had read Chess for Zebras. But actually the part that he proceeded to talk about is part three. He he found the, the he then proceeded to mention the um, the discussion of like colors, which which we'll get to, but but I mean, so it may have influenced his play because he he did read it at some point, and yeah, McShane he does definitely come across as like a major hero of uh, of this book for sure. Well, do you want to turn to part three? Yeah, I think we've we've covered, and yeah, you do make a good point about part two. It was, um, oh, and there is one other. Uh, nugget I want to share from it. Um, but uh, first, I'll just complete the thought that you do make a good point that some of the insights are are, are quite striking. You know, it's just, I had the same reaction to you about the philosophical structure and the Kasparov quote and the chess is one fourth this, one fourth that, uh, which you did a good job summarizing. That, that just lost me a bit more than anything in part one. Um, and the other, but the other sort of uh, metaphor that that I liked was this idea of being uh, protean, um, which I, I might be mispronouncing. But he said, uh, in this respect, I would like to introduce Proteus or Proteus. Do you know, David? <laughs> I would say Proteus, but I think it's okay. the, the tomato, Proteus. tomato. A, a Greek sea god who would change his shape at will and was almost impossible to catch. Proteus may be a mythological character, but the word protean is derived from his name and to be uh, I'm sure there's people like yelling at their audio about how I'm pronouncing this. And to be protein is to be versatile, mutable, and capable of assuming many forms. Good chess players have that and that they can move from one psychological shape to another. And then he does uh, go on to to cite uh, Luke McShane. Protean. Yeah. I again, just listened to it. <laughs> again, easier said than done. Yeah, <laughs> but I, uh, if we could all be shapeshifters, I'm sure we would we would do that. Yeah. Well, should we be protean and move on to uh, part three? Yeah, I think this is good because now we're really going to disagree. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> so, so part three, the final part of the book is called Thinking Colorfully About Black and White. And as I indicated earlier, this is almost certainly the sort of germ from which the title of the book and maybe the whole idea for the book um, grew. Um, and frankly, this is where the book goes off the rails for me. <laughs> um Rousen starts by taking uh, many, many pages to say that while white may score 55 or 56% from the starting position, that's just a statistic. Every game is different. If you're black, you can still fight. Um, that's all he needed to say, uh, mm -hmm. but he belabors it with these terms like hyper theory and 
ceteris paribus, which is Latin for all things being equal, and plus equus, which oh, seems, yeah, I wasn't I into that part. That mean like uh, you know, add a horse or something. I didn't even know what that means. And it's just all completely unnecessary in my view. Um, of course, you know, if you thought that it was hopeless to be black, you wouldn't play chess because half your games, you're going to be black. Um, and of course, every game is unique. What's so interesting to me is the, the, the background assumption against which this whole part of the book is written, which is that white starts with a significant initiative, even at the highest levels of grandmaster play. Look, that was the conventional wisdom 20 years ago when this book was written, but it's definitively not the conventional wisdom anymore. And I actually think Kasparov could already see that in 2005. You know, he famously beat his head against the Berlin Wall without success in that 2000 match against uh, Kromnik. And then right when this book was published, actually 2005, Kasparov retired in part to pursue politics in Russia, but but also I think in part because he could see that his mammoth advantage in opening prep, particularly with white, was was becoming obsolete. And then fast forward 20 years to today, and you have Carlson abdicating his title for pretty much the same reason, because he realizes that at the top level, you can't get anywhere with white in classical chess. So insofar as Rousen is speaking to his top-level GM counterparts, um, everything that he says in part three is, in my view, obsolete. It has not aged well, let's put it that way. Well, I mean, look at the openings that he's talking about in in part three, or just go to the opening index for this book. There's so many Nidorfs, Trompowskis, Benonis, Frenches, you know, where white is just better. There's not a single Berlin or Petrov or Catalan or, say, Queen's Gambit accepted. But those are today's battlegrounds, right? Those are the, the areas where black is completely bulletproof, right, at the highest level. Now, of course, the story is going to be different at, at the club level. Um, but I also just don't think Rousen's very abstract discussion here has much to offer club players. So I, I just found this this section on the openings to be um, at at the very least obsolete and just not useful. Okay, I mean, I could concede that it's dated, but I was putting myself more in the shoes of when he was writing at the time, and uh, I mean he was pushing a back against something, you know, he wasn't like making it up. So, um, you know, he cites a Dorian who had written, I'm probably mispronouncing his name too, um, who had written black is okay. And talks about, uh, you know, cites, cites some examples from, from his books about how, uh, black was doing better than, than people had previously said, but he he also like when he looks at engines, I feel like he was ahead of his time. He writes, uh, certainly if analytical engines continue to improve at their current exponential rate, it won't be long before we can have clear and definitive assessments of most end games, many middle games, and somewhat later, many openings too. However, if chess ever does begin to be solved in this way, it seems it will be extremely unlikely that it will be recognizable as the game that we currently play. So we're maybe not at the point he describes in the last sentence yet, but certainly he saw coming everything that happened um, in terms of like how engines have, as you say, solved so many openings. So um, I, as you mention it, I do, I do concede that this section could have been uh, tighter, but I hadn't even wrestled with the philosophical question that much of like why white 
because white does score better than white should, given what we know that chess is a draw. So to me, there there is something there. There is something worth exploring. Um, and I looked at the Lee Chess Explorer and like sorted through rating ranges. And across the rating spectrum, white still does better, you know, and it's it's kind of weird. Like, why is that, especially at the lower levels? Well, that, that is the one part of this section that I thought, well, there are actually two parts of this section that I thought were interesting. One is where he tries to account for that. And he says, well, by virtue of having the first move, um, white has sort of more margin to absorb kind of counter blows from black. Whereas if, if white hits black, you know, someplace sensitive, someplace tender, um, you know, black has got one ply less margin for uh, absorbing that. Um, And that would seem to account for the difference. Where, Where I really lose him, though, is where he, he sort of tries to both push back against Adrian, but also kind of jump on the black is okay bus. So there's a point where Rousen, I think building actually on Mihai Suba, um, argues that black may have a sort of advantage in that black has more information, right? One ply more information about which moves have already been played, um, which I think Rousen recognizes is a preposterous argument, even as he's making it. Um, because of course, by the virtue of the same fact, white has also gotten one more punch in on black. And the punch seems to be more important than the information, which he, Rousen, recognizes. Um, But then he says, well, okay, white may have an initiative, but black, again, borrowing from Mihai Suba, has more, quote unquote, potential, which is a term that Rousen never defines and which I did not know what he was talking about, basically. Here's a quote. He says, Rousen says, one of Black's aims in the opening should be to maximize potential so that he can make information more important than the initiative. Now, I read that sentence several times. I still have no idea what it means. It's one of those moments where Rousen sort of admits that he doesn't, he, that he says, I'm, I know I'm speaking very abstractly. Um, I, I don't, that, that sentence is not even legible to me. Yeah, well, like he shows like the hippopotamus around there, these sort of uh, openings where Black sort of concedes some space. And I guess the idea is that you hope that that the other side will, you know, in a hypermodern sense, the other side will overextend themselves. Um, yeah. But yeah. the other point in this part where I do think Rousen has a point is where he says Black may have a psychological advantage, at least at lower levels, in that white will feel some responsibility to win. And so if black manages to equalize, um, then white might find it psychologically hard to adjust and the initiative may shift. And and this really connects back to that great chapter on grinding, where, as we said, all of those grinds by Luke McShane and others were done by black, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of liked that connection, but I honestly could have cut all of part three and been very happy. Oh, okay. I would. I definitely wouldn't cut it. I could see reducing it significantly. You've made some some good points, but uh, but I did find some some interesting points. I mean, it had me 
looking at how different openings score. I mean, probably I should be doing this anyway, but just out of curiosity, not like going deep into the variations, but like one E4, how do the different moves do? And then like sorting by every 200 point rating band because he had the sort of philosophical discussion about the mainline Sicilian trading the center pawn for the wing pawn. Um, And it's funny, the double king pawn at the grandmaster level, it it wins less but draws more, unsurprisingly. And overall, Black's expected value is going to be highest with double king pawn in grandmaster games. But Sicilians do still win more. But once you get to the club level, E5 is the worst opening. Like, oh, like that's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. And even though it's objectively the best, um, and I, I, you know, I started to think about why that might be in my own opinion might be that, and I remember there was some recent discourse, I think it was on Twitter, where someone was uh, just talking about what opening should I play against double king pawn. And they were saying, if you play, if you're playing double king pawn, you're always going to run into someone's specialty, some like obscure gambit you know whether it be the the evans or the danish or whatever it is like it's just there there's so many little pitfalls so maybe that's what's taking place at at the club level or as as you were alluding to like um maybe and i think our has talked about this he quoted coach in the book that people have their pet openings as white so they do more work in them and maybe they win although that's sort of um in that's um oppositional to the point that he makes that many others have made that the openings are not actually uh, determining the outcome of the game. Um, one well, of the things I thought this final section was, was geared towards higher rated players. Right. And yeah. You, you can tell that Rousen loves the Sicilian, right? Yeah. So do I, you and I probably both love the Sicilian. Um, but when Rousen says that it's the best black defense against one E4, it, that's just so 2005. I right. mean, the only top player in the world who still thinks that in 2023 is MVL. And even he doesn't think that. Yeah. Um, so it just, you know, this this part of the book to me was overtaken by, by, by time. Yeah. Okay. That's valid. One other point, though, that did resonate with me was, again, from the Cotrianus thing, where he talked about a placebo effect, where he said maybe the reason that... Uh, that people score better with white is because they know they think they're supposed to do better with white. So they just have more confidence. So from a psychological perspective, I did find the the general discussion interesting, but I definitely get your point. It's um, definitely more outdated than the other sections and, um, and could have been shorter. But I, I like section two better than you did. So yeah, <laughs> although you did like some of the stuff I had forgotten about. Very positive. Yeah, some of the stuff I I to me part 1 had the highest batting average, but the peaks were just as good in part 2 as in part 1. But anyway, I mean, probably not not that interesting for people who haven't read the book to hear. So, but overall I would say worthwhile book. Um are there any other quotes that that haven't come up that you feel that people definitely should hear, David? Oh, I me, mean, I have a bunch, but I'll I'll just do just do a few. Um at one point, he says in the midst of one of his game annotations, um, as a rule of thumb, I think it is wise to be extra suspicious of any plan that takes more than three moves to implement. And I thought that was just great. You know, yeah. like, I could see myself quoting that to my students when they say, okay, well, I'm going to go here, 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 here. And you said, no, slow down, right? Don't, don't over plan. Uh, 
So yeah. that that I thought was was excellent. He also at one point quotes um, Lev Sakis as saying, "One idea is not enough. Good moves usually have at least two ideas," which I thought was also really interesting. Um, yeah, I liked the so little. Those, Paco. those are two quotes that I really like. Okay, I've got one for you. I liked the uh, Paco Vallejo, who's now uh, Spanish number one, twenty seven hundred level grandmaster, but. Um, he said that he was looking at a game with I am Geert van der Strict and Paco, and uh, the Geert was uh, uncomfortable about weakening his pawn structure and kept repeating, but my pawn structure, I couldn't do that to my pawn structure. And he said, Paco listened to this plea a few times in silence, but eventually remarked, you shouldn't worry so much about your pawns. They'll be perfectly straight again in the next game. <laughs> yeah, I like that one too. <laughs> yeah. um, any other quotes for you? I mean, similar to you, uh, I could go uh, on and on, but I mean, I, I guess the one other one I would give is about yin and yang. I'm guessing, did this one resonate with you or was this one a little too far gone for you, David? No, I think I'm going to like it. Remind okay. me. Okay. He said, Taoists conceive of the world as an ongoing interplay of two expressions of the same cosmic energy, qi. Yin refers to the receptive, the yielding, the adaptive expression of this energy, while yang refers to the active, creative, and productive aspects. It's important to grasp that they are not in opposition. When a Western mind comes across two things, our first instinct is to think of a duality, i.e. to think that the two things are completely different and separate from each other. Yin, yin and yang are not like that at, at all. The yin-yang polarity is called a polarity because at a conceptual level, the poles are at the endpoints of the same stuff. All that takes place between the poles is yin and yang. Neither that is closer to yang or yin, but never exclusively one or the other. The relevance to chess is that I think most players place far too much emphasis on the yang aspects of playing, doing things, being creative, making things happen, rather than the yin aspects, being adaptive, letting things happen, absorbing pressure, taking it easy. Yeah, I like that. That's obviously from the being versus doing chapter, which I, I kept being reminded of that famous graffiti that I think Kurt Vonnegut quotes in one of his novels where you have famous philosopher Lao Tzu who says to be is to do. And then Aristotle says to do is to be. And then Frank Sinatra says, do be, do be, do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's one more quote that that I thought really captures what makes this book and, and what makes Jonathan Rousen unique. He says, the enduring fascination of chess lies in the complexities of the game matching the cravings of the human intellect. There's freedom to set sail in creative expression, but ideas are always anchored by logic. It is infinitely exacting, but it stretches without strain. Yeah, very poetic. And there's certain, you know, having read the moves that matter and interviewing Jonathan about it in recent years, there's even strains that that come up all the way dating back to to his his works, like the 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 connection between chess and uh, love of concentrating. Um, he says it's not so much that we concentrate in order to play chess, but that we must play chess in order to concentrate. We love the experience of concentration, and that is what chess offers us. And I, I definitely think he's on to something there. No, especially in the age of smartphones, just the ability oh to get away yeah. from the screen and have something just singular to think about for you know a long period of time is yeah. priceless. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I'm still an avid reader, but 
I I'm constantly checking my phone when I read. So and blitz chess online, like I'm not checking my phone, I'm able to focus, but it doesn't feel the same because it's still digital. So to actually play over the board chess, it's like, it's not only that I'm not checking my phone, but that I'm not thinking about it. You know, it's those moments are so rare now. Yeah, no, I agree. So I think listeners will have a pretty good sense of our overall assessment of this book. But do you have any sort of thoughts in summary? No, I mean, I, yeah, I, I feel like um, we've we've correctly, I mean, I shouldn't say correctly, but hopefully um, sort of characterized the good and the bad of the book. I mean, to my mind, again, the good far outshines the bad, but I do want anyone, um, anyone picking up the book based on this podcast to have a full sense of what they're getting into. And yeah, I would say, again, slightly less abstract than Seven Deadly Chess Sins some profound insights, but uh, there there may be a moment or two um, where you're you're turning the page a little bit quicker. Yeah, I, I think we're largely on the same page, though maybe which parts we liked better differed. But overall, to me, this is an excellent book. It's not quite a classic on the level of Seven Deadly Chess Sins for me. Um, and I think I touched earlier on why I think that. It just, for me, Seven Deadly Chess Sins has this sort of unifying theme. Um, uh, and also, I think because that book is sort of about the kind of timeless foibles of the human psyche, uh, Rousen sort of earns the right to engage in his psychological uh, and, and, and philosophical rambling a little bit more. Whereas this book is really about uh, what goes on on the, on the chessboard. And so some of the philosophical musings to me felt a little bit more extraneous here, but there's tons of instructive material in this book and that material is just terrific. Yep. Yeah. Well said. And I also prefer seven deadly chestnuts. I know uh, Fred Wilson, I was looking for a quote and Googling and I actually came across a quote from when he was, I think on perpetual chess, but anyway, he prefers uh, chess for zebras. And again, for anyone who like, Seven Deadly Chestnuts, the philosophical side resonated with you and I, but with others, if it didn't resonate, you may find this book slightly more practical. And if you're like really into adult improvement, again, I think you could just read part one, start part two, see how you like it, and uh, <laughs> then decide from there. But part one alone is worth it. Agreed. All right. Well, David, uh, thanks again. Um, I really appreciate you as now you're the official law correspondent and the official Jonathan Rousen correspondent here on uh, Perpetual Chess. It's an honor. <laughs> it's Excellent. always fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again for for um, for coming on. And yeah, hopefully we can uh, find a new author or maybe Jonathan will write another book. I, I don't think we can do the moves that matter, um, but but maybe we can uh, chat about another book someday. Well, I hope we find an excuse to get together. Thanks for having me on. Podcast Network.